This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. CBS News weather producer David Parkinson has been tracking the storm's path. What do we know, David? Yeah, we got big updates here. So now Category 1 hurricane, also landfall. What I'm really worried about is when you say that this storm has gotten weaker over the last few days. Look, CBS I- News climate and weather contributor Jeff Baradelli is tracking Dorian. That's a look at the storm. Big blow up of thunderstorms near the center. The storm is now stronger than it was last night. Welcome to the podcast. Where did you get this number for this week? It is climate week, and this week's big number is two, as in two degrees Celsius. We will explain what that means or what it might mean with our distinguished guest. First, Jeff Birodelli, who is a meteorologist and CBS News weather contributor. Jeff, welcome. I am so glad to be here. And David Parkinson, who is a meteorologist and CBS News weather producer. David. Uh, happy to be here and, and sticking up for us with our American measurements. That would be 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit for those of you playing at home. Thank you. And and offline here, I was just doing my backhand double at NAD 32, but right here in the wonk zone, you tell me it is... 1.8. 9-fifths, so. technically. <laughs> okay. So for, for our audience, that is that is spot on. But, you know, we're talking about climate. We're talking about climate change here and whether or not it's happening, whether or not humans contribute to it. Jeff, is it happening? And if so, how do we know? Yes, it is happening. And humans are responsible for virtually, if not all of it. So literally 100% of it. There's a misconception that it's both natural and human. But you'll hear from climate scientists definitively tell you that it's all human caused. Um, There was a study that was released last year, which said that the evidence uh, for humans causing climate change has reached the gold standard. The gold standard would be a one in a million chance that it's not caused by humans. And that was released by a scientist at Lawrence Livermore Laboratory, which is uh, part of the U.S. government. How do we know? Well, we have all kinds of measurements. So we measure the air temperature. And it's not just like NOAA. It's NOAA. It's NASA. It's Berkeley Earth. Uh, the European Center for Meteorology. It's the UK Center for Meteorology. So it's it's various places. Plus, that's the instrumental record. Then there's also satellite record. And then there's also proxies where we can drill ice cores and we can drill sediment cores. So back back up for a second here. And because we know for there's some folks, they told us in our in our recent poll that they say, well, they don't think the scientists all agree on this. And they say, well, maybe the scientists have an agenda. Tell us what exactly it is that all these folks are measuring. So we are measuring carbon dioxide, which is obviously that's what's absorbing the excess heat in the atmosphere. The more carbon dioxide you have, 
the thicker the blanket, as Mr. David Parkinson likes to say often. And so, yes, we do measure carbon dioxide. We've been measuring it since the 1800s, but we've been measuring it with great frequency since the uh, 1950s in Hawaii, something called the Keeling Curve. Back then, CO2 was at about 315 to 320 parts per million. Now it's 415 to 420 parts per million. Since the 1800s, it's gone up 40%, if not slightly more than that. We are kind of playing Russian roulette, even if we didn't think the climate was changing, to be adding all this excess carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which is not natural, is really, I think, a risky proposition. Okay, so the more carbon dioxide there is in the atmosphere, the more heat the atmosphere traps. And so the other thing that all these folks are measuring is the temperature, the temperature of the atmosphere, the temperature of the oceans, correct? Right, and the oceans is a very important part of it. So we didn't have extensive observational records in the oceans, although ships have been taking records. We've had for a long time. But over the past couple of decades, we have a lot more observations. And ocean heat content, which is the, the whole heat content of the ocean in the upper layers, mid layers, low layers, has been going up and setting records every single year. And there's a good reason for that. It's because 93% of the excess heat that is being trapped by carbon dioxide eventually gets stored in our oceans. So if you want to look for kind of a bellwether, for a sign that climate change is real, just look to the oceans. It goes up consistently every year. It doesn't go up and down. Like, for instance, the atmosphere, 2016, was the warmest in the atmosphere we've ever seen, partially due to an El Nino. But then the temperature went down in 2017, went down in 2018. So people could say, well, why is the temperature not just always going up? Well, it is always going up, but in the oceans, because that is what regulates our climate. Okay, so David, take us back to this idea I teased at the top of two degrees Celsius. Why is that such an important number to climate scientists? So two degrees is is really two degrees Celsius, which is 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit is sort of the no turning back in terms of devastating impacts to the environment. It is the place at which the coral reefs start dying with no way to come back. It's the way that more and more species start dying. So that's really the last great hope to not necessarily leave the world unchanged, but to minimize the damage. Anything beyond there... Uh, You know, if you look at at a body having a fever, right? So 98.6 is normal, which is, let's call that our zero. Let's call it a 100-degree fever to be at at 2 degrees Celsius. That's a low-grade fever. Your body will will fix that. Once you start getting into, you know, the 102s, 103s, where the human body would need to go uh, to the hospital because uh, that Tylenol in your cabinet or that Motrin in your cabinet, it's not cutting it. That's where the the area that we start getting into when we have uh, numbers above two degrees Celsius. We just did a poll on people's views on climate change and what they think is causing it. One of the things that stood out is that many people say they trust their own observations mm-hmm. as much as, or in some cases, more than scientists, government agencies, your local meteorologists who, who do very well, I, might, I will <laughs> add. But uh, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. But the point here is... Explain to us the difference between climate and weather. Right. So the line that that we often hear is is that climate is what you expect and weather is what you get, which is to say when you overarch things over the entire globe over long periods of time, that's the climate. You you do it on on 30-year, 40-year, 50-year scales and beyond. Uh, what you're seeing in weather is that is what you're going to be seeing tomorrow, the next seven days. So even if you've had an abnormally dry 
year even or two or three years, that doesn't mean your climate has necessarily gotten abnormally dry. It just means that that is the weather you've been having recently. The other thing that's really important to to note here is that in terms of the agreement amongst climate scientists... Uh, so the, the the poll is, I believe it's a 52-48 split o- over whether uh, almost everybody agrees uh, and uh, there's still great disagreement. Whether, Amongst, or not, whether or not scientists agree. Correct. To be clear, climate scientists, that number is not anywhere close to that. That number is, uh, you know, somewhere in the in the 97, 98 percent range. And, and that even goes down to your local meteorologist who is... is educated as as we are because we've taken years of of atmospheric science courses in college it doesn't mean that we were studying climate we were studying weather which is a discrete study and which is why i give jeff so much more credence for going to school and and getting a a master's in the climate because it is communicating something that that we know about but it is not uh, what we live and breathe every day. We live and breathe the 10-day forecast. We don't live and breathe the 20 or 30-day forecast, 20 or 30-year forecast. He's exactly right because meteorologists are so used to looking at the extremes which happen, the very moody extremes that happen in 10 or 20 days. And so we talked about the difference between weather and climate. A good way that I remember it is climate is your personality, weather is your mood. So because meteorologists are used to looking at the ups and downs and the moods of weather, it's easy for them to say, well, extremes have always happened. So climate's not really causing more extremes because I deal with extremes on a daily basis. Climate scientists don't deal with extremes on a daily basis. They're looking more for what's happening over the long term. And so you can see why a climate scientist would think differently. With David's number, that you know, 97, 98% consensus is not just being pulled out of thin air, no pun intended. I know we're meteorologists here, David. It's actually been studied and there are probably a good 10, 12 studies that have been done on the consensus alone. There's even a paper on the consensus of the consensus. And it's found to be around the 97, 98%. And and actually of the papers that were um, diagnosed in, in these studies, they find that generally the ones that don't necessarily agree with the consensus on climate change have some type of issues or problems in the actual paper. So it could legitimately be closer to 100%. So we're not just pulling these numbers out of the thin air. Uh, you guys have the best analogies of anyone who's appeared on the podcast. But we're talking with Jeff Berardelli and David Parkinson, meteorologists here at CBS News about the climate. And so let me follow up with this. You have now noted what appears to be a disconnect between what scientists think and what you describe as a near consensus among scientists and what the general public thinks scientists think. And some of that is probably related to where people get their information. One of the things when we were putting the the poll together, full disclosure, we talked about this. You guys gave me a great education on some of these topics. And uh, we asked people whether or not they trusted their local meteorologists as well as government agencies. You all did very well, right? You know, by about two thirds of people. And, And this is where a lot of folks do get their information. And as you put it, I think so well got their interaction with the idea of climate and the idea of weather. Well, and, and one of the interesting things that, that we look here at CBS News is in, in our uh, week that we have this week, uh, where we've had Eye on Earth reports on, on all of our different broadcasts, uh, but also in our general philosophy of covering climate, it's how do we take you to places uh, where the climate is changing so you can see it with your own eyes? Because, you know, right right now, number one on, on the list of, of where you get your information about the climate is observation, which is is one point above 
scientist. And so our hope is, is that who are you going to believe us or your lying eyes, right? That's the, the, the hope that, you know, when we go to Greenland uh, and, and dedicate the resources to going with researchers, you can see there's not an agenda behind it. They are literally dropping these things in and pulling the readings. We're showing you how they're doing that. And when you look at, at the ice melting uh, in Greenland, for example, what we, we found out, which was really fascinating, is it's not just melting because it's hotter on the surface and because the sun is melting it, but because the ocean is getting so much warmer underneath it, it's eroding it from both sides. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of stuff that you can only get by doing that kind of scientific research. And that's why we're tagging along. And we hope that people will see it and understand the mechanisms for a lot of this change that may seem so far removed from where they are. Well, on that point, when we do hear folks in the polls say that they think this is more a result of natural patterns than of human activity, you've explained very well the carbon dioxide and the emissions that you see in the atmosphere. Is that the sole response to those who say it's natural patterns, or are there other data that suggest that in the past this hasn't happened this quickly? Yeah, ice cores. Ice cores go back about 800,000 years. I think there's actually an ice core now that they're working on that may go back more than a million years. Maybe Explain what an ice core is. So basically they go to Greenland and they just core, they drill down as far as they possibly can. They pull up these really long ice cores and it's like, a, like the rings of a tree, except vertical rings. They're horizontal on the vertical, if you will. I know it's a little difficult to understand, but basically each ring represents another year. In years when things melted a lot, they can see that the ring is a little smaller and they can detect the melt and they know it was warmer that year. The water and, from 10,000 years yes, ago. Yes, exactly. Right. That's exactly what it is. And so they can see by reconstructing those records. And it's not just that one place, right? They have other places on Earth to compare it to and not just ice cores, but also sediment cores. And so they can reconstruct it and cross-reference uh, with other scientists on Earth to determine that these cores line up and there was some type of large-scale climate change during a certain period. It may not just be... You may also see soot or carbon, like black carbon, inside these ice cores. So you see, you can, you can see when volcanoes went off. So you can kind of look back and, 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 re, and piece the uh, history together again. And what you come out with is that the climate hasn't changed this rapidly really ever in the record. That's how quickly things are happening now. So it's not to say that we've never been this warm, that the the, temper, the Earth has not warmed by two degrees Celsius before. It is to say the rate at which that has happened has never been equal to this uh, or, or exceeded by this. And when things go over a longer period of time... Uh, through natural selection and all kinds of other processes, the world is better at adapting. The problem is, is that we're doing it at such an accelerated rate that the Earth doesn't have time to adapt, and that's where we're causing the irreparable harm. I'd like to say that the climate is evolving faster than we can evolve, and that's a problem. If you, if you, if you, if you believe in Darwinism, that's not a good thing, that the climate is, 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 is moving faster and um, changing faster than either the human race or especially species. We're in the sixth math, mass extinction, and there's a reason for that. It's very hard for a lot of species, not all, but a lot of species to adapt or move fast enough because they will need to move and migrate because of climate change. And, you know, that's what we're seeing around the earth. Some species will make it, other species won't. And you might think to yourself, well, that is Darwinism, right? Some species make it, some don't. But we're kind of accelerating that tremendously as human beings 
to the point at which it's no longer natural in any way, shape, or form. This natural selection is unnatural selection. David, let me ask you, when you're out there and you're talking about a, a new hurricane forming, when you're looking at tropical storms and what have you, a lot of times folks will, we hear, look at that and go, oh, is that because of climate change or is that directly attributable? But what you and I have talked about or you told me offline here is that you can't take necessarily any particular storm, any particular event and say that's a result of climate change. Is, is that the case? So, so you can take individual events and give sort of the probabilities on, on what would have happened had there not been climate change after the fact. And so what the, the scientific community is getting better at doing is speeding up those studies because it used to be it would take literal years to get those studies out. And by the time the literal years have passed, nobody remembers that storm, right? Because it's always you're just remembering the last storm. And so it became this sort of losing battle where you'd get an attribution study, but you couldn't actually use it in, in broadcast TV or any sort of media because it's like, oh, remember that snowstorm two years ago? Oh, remember that hurricane? Oh, yeah, we just found out that it's, it made uh, the rainfall 25% worse than it would have been. And, and people just don't have those kinds of attention spans. So in the projections from scientists now, if the Earth gets beyond two degrees warmer, what happens? Well, first of all, there's nothing magical that will happen at 1.5 or two degrees you know, Celsius, which David mentioned was 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. But the further we get down that line the worse the impacts end up being. What we're worried about is irreversible impacts. And that's what they say, the scientists who study this every day, say happens once we get past around two. The question is, will there be a tipping point? And that tipping point may very well be a big chunk of ice from the Antarctic or Greenland all of a sudden slides into the ocean. And instead of having gradual sea level rise of, you know, a centimeter a year or a couple of centimeters a year, whatever it is, all of a sudden now you're talking about a foot in a very short period of time. Can you imagine the amount of people in real estate that impacts in coastal areas all over the world? So we're worried about tipping points that we may pass. And I think a thing about projections sort of in, in two different levels. One, when we take a look at climate models, we've got sort of this 95% confidence interval about what's going to be happening. And the concept behind that is when you have El Ninos and La Ninas, right, the warmest year on record was because we had a strong El Nino and that is that sort of fueled the warmer temperatures around the globe. It's not going to say that the, the climate model is going to nail the El Nino every year, but it knows over that longer period of time that the line is pretty well fit to, to each other. There's also different numbers that we use. There are a couple that came out, the National Climate Assessment, which came out from the U.S. government, uh, has all these different sort of scenarios. And one of the two pathways that they have is a 4.5 and an 8.5. It's a measurement um, of watts per meter squared, which is super in the weeds, but it roughly equates to four to four and a half degree Fahrenheit and somewhere around an eight to eight and a half degree Fahrenheit increase. And as a result of those different both energy increases and temperature increases, you see remarkably different uh, results in terms of the amount of coastal flooding you get, the amount of droughts, uh, the amount of heavy rain uh, systems. So some of them will be more dire in their predictions than others. That doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be the case, but it lays out all the different options and it lays out the case pretty well. The sooner we can start doing something, the lower that number will be. 
like anything else, a range of possibilities, some perhaps more likely than others. Jeff Berardelli, David Parkinson, meteorologist, my colleagues here at CBS News. Fascinating stuff, and congratulations on an amazing week of coverage, in-depth coverage of the climate story, and much, much appreciated you joining here on the podcast. That's going to wrap us for this week. Let me thank, as always, my wonderful producer, Alan Pang, who pulls all of this together, and everyone at CBS News Radio who makes this possible. Subscribe or rate, please, if you like what you've heard. At me with questions about polling and politics. I am at Salvanto CBS, and we are at Where Did You Get This Number? Just the uh, initials there. And we'll be back next week. Most of all, thank you for listening. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.